Amen. Thank you for that reminder, Jesse. Uh, even the uh, preacher needs to be reminded not to be thinking about his plans after church before beginning to preach. All right, so uh, let's dive right in. Grab your Bibles. We're picking up again in chapter 8 of Proverbs. And so hopefully this has been helpful for you working through systematically through a book like Proverbs that um, is often used practically but neglected exegetically. And so we're going to continue in looking at the comparison and the contrast between the folly of the world and the adulterous woman in chapter 7 and the wise woman, uh, lady wisdom, in chapter 8. And one of the things I want you to think about, a theme that comes up in both, is that both the temptress from chapter 7 and the counselor from chapter 8 both offer love to man. One of the claims of both is love. The adulteress from chapter 7 calls the man into sensuous, self-indulgent love. But the counselor from chapter 8 speaks of a lasting, meaningful love. And only one of these truly embodies concern for another. And so we know this in our lives, in our culture. Love is a great motivator. Many of books and songs and marketing campaigns have been written um, or have been directed around the idea of love. Because we are all chasing love somewhere, somehow. And the world has its message of love, a gospel, if you will, albeit a false gospel. But there is a good news that can only be understood in the love of God. And wisdom personifies that for us. And so I want us to think about, when we think about love in our lives and in the world around us, is love just a passing emotion? Or is love lasting devotion? And does real love fulfill our deepest desires that we think for ourselves or does love fulfill what is ultimately in the best interest of its object and that is hopefully what we'll see this morning all right so I want to bring us back into where we are in the context of chapter eight so last week we we looked at um, wisdom and what is wisdom and last week was interesting because verses four through eleven are all driven by imperatives they're driven by commands Wisdom tells us who she is or what she is and directs man, hear, listen, go do these things. Um, these are directives based on principles. But for our next two weeks, the texts are indicatives. Here's the difference. An imperative says, go and do this. An indicative says, this is the truth. Here's what is. Here are the facts. And so these uh, next two weeks, she's going to tell us about herself and uh, in this, is this week, 12 through 21, uh, she's going to tell us about herself and how she works in the affairs of man. Next week, she's going to tell us about herself and how she is worked out by God in verses 22 through 31. So we're going to see in both weeks, as we said last week, the wisdom of God has much to show us about the love of God and the sustaining and creating work of Christ, respectively. This week, we're going to look at the sustaining work of Christ. Next week will be the creating work of Christ. Um, but this particularly, so getting into our text, 12 through 21, this is where wisdom is communicable and beneficial. That word we mentioned last week, communicable, just means that it can be 
uh, communicated, passed on to someone else. This is an attribute of God that is not unique to God that we as his creatures can actually take part in and, and possess. And we're going to see the benefits of it. So if you have your outlines in front of you, uh, I want you to see how this, this section is, is, is broken up. Um, this, it's, it's two stanzas, uh, 12 through 16 and 17 through 21. The first stanza is what wisdom loves and by extension what wisdom hates. Then, there's, then we're going to see how wisdom loves in a general sense. We're going to be looking at more of a common grace, general scale of uh, communicating righteousness uh, in a civil sense. But then this second stanza is who she loves. And this is uh, communicated righteousness, imputed righteousness to loved ones. And then we're also going to see how she loves so this is more transforming grace on an individual and particular basis. So we're going to see wisdom in the affairs of all men, and then wisdom in particular in the affairs of the people of God. Um, and so that's where we're going this morning. So let me read verses 12 through 21, chapter 8. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness, my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. And my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as humble servants and humble students. We desire to sit at our master's feet. We desire the words of your lips to be penetrating through our ears to our hearts. May we be like Mary at the feet of our Lord, who wants to soak in the wisdom of God, who wants to glean what we can and be on the edge of our seat every time our Lord speaks. Lord, you have spoken, and you are speaking through your word. The same spirit that you send to indwell believers has preserved your word, and we ask that your spirit would quicken our ears and our minds and our hearts. That as we learn about your interaction with man and your love for man, and particularly your love for us, may we be encouraged. May we be emboldened. May we seek wisdom. May we run after her and not run after the adulteress. May we be people who love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength so that we may love our neighbor as ourselves and be your witnesses to all peoples, to all nations, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Verse 12, I. This begins with a first-person address. Wisdom is describing herself. The father is speaking to the son. Here, 
uh, putting wisdom in a personified form of this beautiful, wise woman who is, who is to be desired. And here is why she is to be desired. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. This high ideal from last week, this, this principle, this divine principle, is now being communicated. And it's not just this ethereal concept that's way out in space. She actually dwells. And where she is, where she operates, you'll see these things. You'll see these three virtues, prudence, knowledge, and discretion. She here is going to begin to describe practical wisdom. This is practical, lived out, applicable wisdom. And so three things define that. This is not exhaustive, uh, but you're going to see a lot of synonyms throughout the book of Proverbs to kind of paint this picture of what wisdom is and what wisdom is not. These are uh, three very descriptive words in the Hebrew. You've got prudence, knowledge, and discretion. So prudence is another word for shrewdness. Uh, This is um, having discernment in skillfully applying wisdom. This is when to do, uh, when to be aggressive, when to be passive, when to move forward, when to stop. Um, This governs actions, prudence, Uh, knowledge. This is not pure information. This is not mere book knowledge. This is applicable information. This is knowing something enough to apply it to your life. This is having the right tool for the right job, the right information for the right solution. And then we've got discretion. This is the ability to make wise decisions. This is your, your, your thought process in your mind. When I'm faced with two options, when I'm faced with many options, do I apply discretion? Do I apply the wisdom of God in prudence with, with knowledge in order to make the right decision? And so um, this is kind of our, our baseline for communicating wisdom. That's who we are as, as image bearers. As being made in the image of God, this is part of, of the Imago Dei, is that we actually get to make decisions. We bear the image of our creator. We get to create things. We don't create as he creates, ex nihilo, out of nothing, but we get to create with, with what we have. And so um, we can create art and we can create music and we can, and we can build things. And, um, and, and so wisdom is being able to take what God has given us and apply that well. And so this knowledge, this creativity, all of it comes from the wisdom of God. There's nothing that is, that, that is possible outside of what God has given man. Um, and our sovereign God, in a way that we can't understand, carries the actions of man, where we're actually making decisions, where we actually know things, we're actually applying wisdom, but yet God is still sovereign and directing all of it. So what wisdom is saying here is, before you take credit for anything, remember where this, remember where this came from. If you have any prudence, if you have any knowledge, if you have any discretion, it comes from me. And so this is, this is where the, the baseline is for uh, image bearers. And we see this perfectly and exemplified in the work of Jesus Christ. If you just think through the Gospels, you know, think through the parables, think through his 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 interactions with those he he met during the day. How often can you see prudence in the way that he responded? How often can you see knowledge, knowing exactly what the intentions of the heart was to the person who asked him a question? How often do you see discretion when his enemies would try to goad him on to responding in anger? And he would respond in wisdom, in gentleness, in truth. 
This is perfectly exemplified in Christ. And I like Isaiah 11 here because Isaiah 11 uh, shows this, this promised branch and um, what we see in 12 and 13. So Isaiah 11, I'm going to read 11 through 15. I, I almost, and I didn't, I almost did a, an entire sermon with Isaiah references. There are so many references to Isaiah that are fleshed out in Proverbs that are fulfilled in Christ. It's incredible. So many people call Isaiah the gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, but I want you to see all of these details here that we're going to be fleshing out. This is the, the promised Messiah, the promised righteous branch. Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is probably what marks the life and ministry of Jesus more than anything else. What is the, the, the aim of the writer of Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, his entire life, everything he did, he delighted in the fear of the Lord. Through his temptation, through his walking on the planet, through his teaching, through his healing, through his crucifixion, he delighted in fearing and obeying his father. And this is what the writer of Proverbs wants his son to see. This is what is most important, that you fear the Lord in all things, that you do not fear man, that you do not walk in your own strength. This is wisdom, fear of the Lord. And this is how his wisdom is acted out. Continuing in verse 3, he shall not judge by what, his, by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This is not external discernment. His heart is completely aligned with the fear and the will of God so that he applies discernment rightly. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall, shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So when we read wisdom, we do not have to, as I said last week, we do not have to force Christ into the idea of wisdom. Every time we see wisdom, it points us to Christ. And not only is he the spirit of wisdom, but spirit of knowledge and counsel and perfectly fearing the Lord. And so all of this should bring our attention to Christ. And so this idea of wherever wisdom dwells, these virtues are, we see perfectly in Christ. But there's also something unique about how wisdom dwells with the people of God, those who have been redeemed. Um, uh, many of you have heard me describe the Bible in terms of dwelling. We can describe all of the scriptures, creation to consummation in terms of dwelling. What do we see in the garden? Adam and Eve, what was the blessing that they had? God walked with them without sin, without the, the uh, spoiling of human evil. He dwelt with them in the garden. There's nothing better than for God to walk with you in the cool of day with no sin. But then sin comes. But what is God's answer when he creates a nation? And he sends and he delivers them. He redeems them with the price of blood out of Egypt. What 
does he give them as a promise in the wilderness? His very dwelling, the same word for tabernacle. It means dwelling. God dwells with his people. The very presence of God in the Holy of Holies goes before the people. What is the answer to the sin that we see in the garden? What is the answer to all humanity's problems? God dwelling with man as man. When Emmanuel comes, he dwells among us. The word became flesh. That God who was with God and is God took on flesh to dwell with man. What is the great promise of revelation? That God will dwell with man. He will be their God and they will be his people. So what is this picture of dwelling in Proverbs? Dwelling is between creation and consummation. We've got the people of God dwelling with God in, in wisdom. Where they needed to be with the tabernacle in the old covenant. Now in the new covenant, the spirit is sent. And so that as you walk in wisdom, as you apply the word of God, God dwells with you. You dwell with him. This communion with God goes wherever we go. And so here's what Proverbs is saying. Fear the Lord. Seek wisdom. Because this is dwelling with God. Wisdom, the very personification of God's knowledge and insight, dwells among man. And this is uh, Jesus' instruction for us. When he tells us to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. We should be discerning. Serpents are cunning and they are, are, are crafty. They're aware of what's, what's around them. We can be that and still be gentle and still be, and still be, be loving. So uh, that's kind of the baseline for, for everything else. This is what wisdom loves. She dwells with prudence and knowledge and discretion. And when God sent the Spirit, that's what he desires for us as well. So with what she loves... It also implies what she hates. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but it also assumes if you love what God loves, then you must hate what God hates. You cannot love what God loves and love what he hates at the same time. How many people say, I love God in a general sense? Sure, I love this Jesus guy, but I also love all of these sinful, wicked things that the world loves. As we saw last week, you cannot serve two masters. But the words here, I mentioned this a couple chapters ago. we got to do it again. But when we hear hate, we start to tense up a little bit. We can't picture hate without sin. We have a hard time thinking of hatred in any positive terms. Um, let me maybe ruffle your feathers a, a, a little bit. Hate is not a bad thing. Hate, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. Hate with sinful intent is. So hate, despising what is evil, actually glorifies God. But when it becomes selfish, when it becomes for our own ends, when sin is, is inflicted in it, we really struggle with hating what God hates and not making it about us because we are so selfish and self-centered. But Jesus had a lot to say about hate. Jesus actually instructed us to hate many times. We're just going to look at two of them. Uh, I want to look at Matthew 6, 24. 
Matthew 6, 24, look what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Notice Jesus creates this, this contrast. To love one master, you must hate the other. To love the Lord, you must hate what he hates. There is a false gospel out there that said, that says that being a Christian is just loving everyone and everything equally. That is a lie. Because God does not love everyone and everything equally. God has a righteous hatred for what is evil. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus tells us, but you can't serve God and anything else. If you serve God, you love what he loves. And what he hates breaks your heart. And you weep for those who rebel against him and reject him. Let's go to John chapter 12. Jesus again addresses this. Can't even get into the one that makes us most uncomfortable where Jesus says, unless you hate your mother, your brother, and sister for for my sake, uh, you'll have no inheritance with me. But let's look at John 12. John 12, 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. we got to spend some time here. This includes the gospel promise, but also the gospel demand. You must follow me. And what does following me include? Hating your very life. That doesn't, that doesn't really fit well on a Lifeway greeting card. Hate your very life. You must lose your life. You must hate the sin in your old self so much. You must be miserable apart from Christ. Lord, I will leave all behind and follow you. Amen. And if you do, eternal life. Is it worth it? Is everything that makes you comfortable now, everything that you identify with now, all of your little pet sins and the things in the world that, that, that pull you aside, are, do you love Christ enough to hate them? Or do they have your heart? Or do they pull you away with these false, sensual gospels? Indulge yourself. I want you to love what you love. Jesus' call is, I want you to love me above all else. And if you serve him, you serve the Father. This is the gospel message. Die to yourself. Why? Because you are a sinner. You deserve to die. There is nothing in you that is worthy of being loved. You're not that special. Neither am I. But our God says in Christ you are special. Not because of anything in you, but because I set my love on you. I will make you beautiful. I will remove all of your scars all of, your, all of your sin, I will even remove death. 
And to show you how serious I am, I will die first so that you will die with me, so that you can live with me. That is the gospel promise. Not just be a better person, but be a new person. Because the old person is dead and filthy and disgusting. But the new one, in Christ, because of his righteousness, because of his work for you, will be perfect. And in a sense, is perfect. We have a guarantee of this in the Spirit. And so this idea of hate shouldn't challenge us as much as it does. It should challenge us in a way like, do I love what the Lord loves? Do I hate what the Lord hates? This is the fear of the Lord, back in Proverbs 8. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Think about that. Do you fear the Lord enough to hate evil? This doesn't mean that you look for um, evil everywhere and hate everything. Don't be a Christian curmudgeon. Um, but really hate evil. Really not set anything apart in your, in, in, in your heart that is uh, separate from the fear of the Lord. All right, kind of flesh that out enough. But I want us, I want us to think about Jesus' illustration um, back in John 12, about this, this seed that, that dies. So this message of death in the gospel is, is uncomfortable, but this is common. Think about it. Death is all around us. There is... We would, we would not eat if something did not die first. There are delicious plants and very delicious animals who have to die so that we can eat, so that we can live. We assume death every time we sit down at the dinner table. We live in a world that is dying. We live in a world where the rhythm is atrophy. Everything is moving toward its destruction and new birth. Forest fires remind us that all of the underbrush, the stuff that's living has to die so that the things that are stronger can grow, so that new birth can come out of that. And give so many examples of this. Our spiritual condition mirrors the physical. In order for you to grow strong as a, as a tree or anything else, fill in the example here, what is inhibiting growth must be burned away. All of that underbrush in the forest that is, that is sucking nutrients from your roots needs to be destroyed. You have to be charred in this forest fire so that you can grow stronger. You must be refined in the fire. This, the, the spiritual parallel is the same. There must be death for life. And those who try to hold on to their own life and their own strength will die in their own strength. And so here's my question for you this morning. If you have not yet, or if you are in Christ, are you willing to die? Or are you still that, that grain that Jesus is talking about? Think about how silly that is. For this grain to hold on to this dried, dead stalk. This is, this is my life. This is what I'm, what I'm holding on to. This is the picture of the call to be born again. You've got a grain of wheat holding on to a dead stalk. We all know that that stalk is dried up and it's going to fall to the ground at any moment. But when the grain lets go of its seemingly meaningful life and drops to the ground, then it can live. Then it sprouts up and then it bears fruit. 
Which one are you? Are you that grain who thinks that they can hold on to the stalk forever and think that I sustain my own life? But I will tell you this morning, the old is wasting away and the harvest is coming. Jesus uses this language when he returns. He's not coming on rainbows. He's coming with a sickle. And he's going to be cutting down every false chaff that is not true wheat. Are we holding on to our little corner of creation? Or are we freely surrendering ourselves to death to Christ so that we may live with him? All right, we've got to move on or we will never get out of this section. Verse 14. So this is um, her giving more direction about her virtues. And this is specifically setting up the next two verses. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and I have strength. Her storehouses are full of these virtues. This is what I have. I possess and I dole them out in abundance or in, or in scarcity. I dole them out as I please. This made me think about Romans 11, uh, also quoted from Isaiah 40. We know the great benediction at the, at the end of um, the indicative portion of Romans. But Romans 11, look how wisdom points us to the fullness of the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth, this is uh, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Wisdom says, I have counsel. All the counsel of God. I have sound wisdom, righteous wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. This is in a general common grace sense because it's setting up the next two verses. Again, like I said earlier, if there is any application of wisdom, if there's any right governance, if there's any good decisions made, it cannot be made apart from the wisdom of God. Uh, Augustine had a, had a saying that many people have used since, all truth is God's truth. If anyone says anything true, they cannot say it apart from the wisdom of God. Does not mean... The Spirit dwells within them in the same sense. This is why common grace is such a, a, a beautiful idea. Because the wicked, sinful, hateful people that we just mentioned deserve to be destroyed. We deserve death. But in God's common grace, common to everyone, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He actually keeps order in the world. He actually gives wisdom and knowledge to pagans so that his people can thrive. He gives directions to outright evil rulers. And he withholds complete chaos because our God loves order. It pleases him that societies run in order. Societies run so that his people can flourish, that his church can grow. He creates an environment where he controls everything around us for our good and for his glory. And you know what? Non-believers benefit. Pagans benefit. Um, so in a general sense, in verse 14, if you have counsel, if you have any soundness, any insight, any strength, this will lead to justice. And these things allow you to rule well only because God grants it to you. So this is, leads right into verse 15. By me, wisdom again, kings reign. 
and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. These are two parallel verses. We don't really need to flesh those out. Um, But I want you to think about this. There is no one who rules apart from him. There is no one who has ever sat on a throne or in an office or had a cabinet who rules apart from God. This certainly doesn't mean that every ruler is just and every ruler is wise and right. But God providentially appoints for his purposes, either for prosperity or for punishment. Sometimes we get rulers who bless us. Sometimes we get rulers who punish us because we deserve it. And this is difficult to wrap our heads around. Like, How could God direct rulers that are so wicked and so evil and hate him? Read the prophets. He's been doing it throughout the ages. He raises up Pharaoh for his purposes. He raises up Cyrus for his purposes. He raises up Nebuchadnezzar for his purposes. But we have to be reminded again, especially if you look around the world, because if you're a student of history, most rulers have been wicked. There have been very few godly, wise rulers. Most of our politicians are wicked. We are standing on probably the edge of World War III. The ruler of one of the largest nations in the world has one of the largest militaries in the world is now saying, I'm going to take countries for myself. Is now saying, I'm going to expand my borders and flaunt my power in front of everyone. What do we do with that? How do we respond to war? Are we surprised? Are we shocked? We live in a fallen world. But do we take comfort in our sovereign God? Do we take comfort that even when wicked rulers make good decisions for the wrong reasons that God is glorified? Or wicked rulers make wicked decisions for wicked reasons and God is still glorified? What's the alternative? I had a, friend, I had a lunch with a friend this week and he was asking me about this. He says, what do I do when my best friend has lupus or um, a member of my family dies early? That shakes my faith. I don't really know if he has faith or not. But I said, what's the alternative? What is terrifying is that a dictator is out of control of God's hand. What is so terrifying is that God is as powerless as you are to heal. God is as helpless as you are when someone else is sick. That is truly terrifying. Brothers and sisters, we should take comfort that even when the nations rage and wars carry on and people die and sickness comes, our God is in control of these things because if he's not, we of all people should be pitied. And so in this way, in common grace, it's a good thing we're not in World War 158. We deserve World War every year because we all hate God and desire to build our own kingdoms. It is only by his common grace that we might be facing World War III. And if we do, God will grow his church and he will glorify his name in it. Amen.
So I want you to think about this, okay, because that's the question that's on everybody's mind. On, on a more practical level, um, how can a pagan use wisdom? You know, even pagans can rule well according to God's principles. Um, a lot of you have read, and um, it's on the back shelf if you're interested, but uh, Samuel Renahan's book, The Mystery of Christ, he makes a really important distinction. That in God's common grace, we can do civic good. Anyone can do good to mankind on a surface level. That doesn't mean that they can do spiritual good. God's wisdom applies um, in civil or civic or public realms that, do, that does not require, require regeneration. But the difference is, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot do any spiritual good until your heart has been transformed. So wisdom does common good for the common grace of all man, mankind um, in which all men participate. But then there's a, a uh, particular way that we participate as believers, and this is stanza number two. I love those who love me. Verse 17, and those who seek me diligently find me. So let's flesh this out a little bit. Stanza number one, what wisdom loves in a general sense, but more in a more particular sense, who wisdom loves now. I love those who loves me. This moves to a personal and intimate love for God and the things of God. This moves beyond the idea of just making decisions for the general and public good um, to affections and motivation. This moves from, from common grace to saving grace. We love the verse in 1 John that says we love because he first loved us. This is how this love is even possible. I love those who love me. It doesn't necessarily happen in that order, but wisdom is calling you to love me. Love who I, who I represent. But we know theologically what's going on behind the scenes is God changes our hearts. This is the other side of the gospel good news that we looked at before. You must die and be made new, not just physically, but spiritually. Not to do civic good, but to do good in which God says you are pleasing to me as a faithful servant. And you cannot do that until you love him. And you cannot love him unless he set his love on you first. The gospel says, die to yourself, live to Christ, and I will make you love me. And I will make you please me. And I will send you and give you wisdom in a way that I give to no one else because you are my child. I want you to walk and talk like me. I want you to look like me. I want you to be my representatives. This is God's gracious and saving love towards sinners that he gives us the mind of Christ. Wisdom loves us in a sense in which, in a way we can't explain. That we think and act differently after Christ than we did before. I can't believe I'm doing this now because I was such an idiot before. I'm still an idiot, but I'm not that much of an idiot because of what wisdom has done in me. Because God has given me discretion. Anyone ever, as a Christian, about to do something really stupid, and a Bible verse comes to mind, and you're like, I know that's not from me. The Lord has saved me from myself yet again. This is the love of God to those who, who, who love him. And this, the love of God in this way is particular and it is reciprocal. It works in both ways. God doesn't just create um, 
mindless robots, but he gives us new hearts so we can actually love him and actually interact with him. Only in love, in true saving love, is, are, are the rest of these possible. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. So those who love him will seek him. Jesus has much to say about this as, as well. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be open. And what does Jesus give as an example? What a great illustration. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, you great and upright people, no. If you then who are evil, think about this. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. God should hate you. You are evil. You are. But if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is why he changes our hearts to teach us how to ask for what we should ask for so that we're no longer spoiled, selfish babies who just want what, what, what we want, who seek our selfish desires every moment of, of every day. You know how to give good gifts because I've given you wisdom. I'm going to give you a new heart so you ask for what you, you, you should ask for, so you seek me. Um, people love the quote, Jeremiah 29, 11, but they forget about Jeremiah 29, 13, where it says, when you, you will seek me and find me when... You seek me with all your heart. This is not half-hearted seeking. This is not Jesus among all other gods. This is seeking him out of love and, and devotion with all of your heart, undivided, without divvying up your affections to another master. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Wisdom says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. If you knew right now, hypothetically, where a stash of gold was, was hidden. I mean, like a big Captain Hook treasure chest of gold. You knew where it was. It was on, it was on um, land that no one else knows where it is. What would you do? How far would you go to secure your future forever? What would you employ? What extent would you go to to go find this gold? Some of you, your mind's already thinking like, man, I could do this. I could pay off the mortgage. I could buy a car. I could do all, all this. Do you seek after God the same way? Did your mind begin to wander and your heart begin to, to pump when you think about seeking God as you think about seeking material possessions? Do you have the same desire for the things of God as you do for riches in this life? Do you seek after God in the same way? If we're honest this morning in your own head, please not out loud, how would you rate your seeking after God? One to ten. One being, well, I sought after him last Sunday when I showed up in church, and I, maybe I'll be here next week if there's not a better option going on. 
That'd be a one, if that. Ten, none of us in here have a ten. But do we wake up wanting to please him? Are we convicted of our sin in the middle of the day knowing that we have shamed the name of our Lord and we repent and rest in his grace and we go to bed praising his name for all the blessings we have? Do we seek him in all that we do? Or is he on the shelf until no better option comes? Are you more excited about him than seeking gold? One more question. How do you describe your love for him? What terms would you use when you think about your love for God? Wisdom says, I love those who love me. We're going to get into the treasures in just a moment. But how would you describe it? What words would you use? Do they compare with your love for other things? Do they compare with your affections for what the adulterous woman promises? We should all be feeling convicted in this moment. But here's the beauty of wisdom's promise. If you love me, if you're, if you're in me, you don't have to come with your own riches. You don't have to come all together. You don't have to come with everything of your own because riches and honor are with me. They are mine. You want to be rich? Come to me. You want what will not pass away? Seek me. This is, uh, there are two parallels in verse 18. This is similar to verse 10 and 11. 10 and 11, uh, our last section ended with knowledge being better than choice gold and wisdom better than, than jewels. But this shows how she's better because this is how she loves. Those who come to her get riches. Those who come to her, riches and enduring wealth are parallels here. And honor and righteousness are parallels. So here's another thing that's gonna, um, that we need to kind of clarify. Riches in the Bible are amoral, not immoral, amoral, meaning without moral character. They're not bad in of themselves. Actually, in Proverbs, riches are most often a good thing. Riches are associated with blessing from God. God blesses you with riches. But it's your heart intent, it's your affections that determines whether your riches are helpful or a hindrance. They're amoral in and of themselves. Um, money, material things, they're just tools. Tools themselves, inanimate objects, are not good or bad. It is what you do with them. And like any tool, it's how you use them. Like you give, um, I love when Josh gave my nephews little hammers. When you get your, your first hammer, everything's a nail. Right? Not everything is a nail. That is not a wise use of your, of your, your tools. Um, there are plenty of hilarious YouTube videos of people using tools incorrectly. Money is, is one of those, those tools. Anytime money or wealth or anything else is used improperly, we blame that on, on user errors. Right? You can't blame your, your pen because you failed the test. There's nothing wrong with riches in and of themselves, but true riches. Wisdom here is, is, is talking about enduring wealth, not just what is, what, is, what is fleeting. So those who seek riches, they will get their reward on earth. But those who fear the Lord and seek him and pursue wisdom, they get both. 
This is what um, we, we speak of as a uh, truism, meaning uh, this is not an absolute rule. Not every Christian will, get, will get, get rich. But often, very often, the Lord blesses his, his people because our standards are different. Because now we have contentment. We know what true prosperity is, enduring wealth, that that does not pass away. Because whether the Lord gives us plenty or gives us little, we find comfort in him. We find contentment in him. The other parallel here is honor and righteousness in verse 18. Honor, the Hebrew word for glory. What is weighty or divine riches. What God sees as um, as, as valuable. We are to give all glory to God. All valuable thoughts and praises and things go to God. Wisdom here grants riches and honor. And righteousness, what is right and faithful, this is also valuable to God. The Father here is drawing connection between you want material things, seek what is, what is higher. Seek what is enduring. Seek what, what is valuable to God. How, much, how, uh, how valuable is it? More than the whole world. Let's look at Jesus again in Luke chapter 9. Many of you are familiar with this. It's in all three of the, the synoptic gospels. You're going to notice a theme here in the way Jesus teaches his disciples. Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is not just... I have decided to follow Jesus and then go back into the world. This is take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Here goes Jesus talking about death again. Yes, you must lose it. Die to yourself. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For whoever, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of, of him will the father or excuse me, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father in heaven? The whole world. I know many of us know this verse, and we've said it many times, but do we think about that? The whole world. Could I really turn down the whole world to follow Christ? How valuable. What is enduring wealth? Remember last week, Jesus is the treasure of all wisdom. Follow me, and I will give you what does not pass away what moth and rust cannot destroy. And then here's a description of it. In this life, verse 20, so in the, in the now, I walk in the way of righteousness in the path of judgment. Seek me, find me, you will walk in righteousness, you will walk in justice. I will be with you. And then, verse 21, in the life to come, I will grant an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. In that day, inheritance meant so much doesn't mean as much to us, but your, your, your name, your family legacy, what was left to you, that meant everything. That defined the rest of your life because if your family didn't leave you anything, you would be in the same station that you were born in. But here, there is inheritance. This enduring wealth is the opposite of every other religion's promise. Every other religion in the world says, do this and you will be blessed. Work harder earn more. Do more, get this. If you work hard enough, then the evil God in, in, the, in the sky will give you what you want when you die. That's the promise of every other religion. 
but we serve a gracious God. Our maker and our redeemer of mankind says, love me, trust me, put your faith in me, and I will give you my name. I will give you my riches. I will give you my inheritance. All that required, all that's required is all, of you, all that you are. There's nothing you can work toward, nothing you can act or add to. But this is hard for us. I've heard many people say, wait, I don't have to do anything? Certainly I have to do something. Certainly I have to pray a prayer, I have to give enough, I have to make a trip to Mecca or climb a set of steps or kiss some saint's toe or whatever you want to do. Certainly I must do something. No, you must die. You must repent and trust in me. That's it. That's it. Why is this inheritance better than earthly riches? What is this inheritance? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll close with quick application. Semi-quick. 1 Peter chapter 1. Many of you know this, but this is good to think about. Okay, when wisdom promises an inheritance... What is the fullness of this inheritance? We, Peter lays it out for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Notice all of this imagery about dying, being born again, the mercy and the grace of God. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that does not end. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is why the cross is essential. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He must die so that we would live. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. It is secure. No one will ever disturb that inheritance. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation. We are being guarded, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our salvation is secure in Christ but when he returns, we'll see it in its fullness. In this you rejoice right now, today. If you are in Christ, rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. What else is more precious than gold? Wisdom is more precious than gold. Your faith in Christ, tested, brought through trials, refined in the fire, that is more valuable to God than all the gold in the world. That faith, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen? All right, so just kind of a application question here. What do we do? We think about, yes, I do not love the Lord as I ought. I do not seek the Lord as I ought. I lack discernment. I lack prudence. I lack knowledge. Let me give you another question. If you could ask God for anything right now, or if I stopped you in the middle of the week, if you could ask God for anything right now, what would you, how would you answer? Most of you would answer, I want a better job. I want a boyfriend, I want a girlfriend, I want to be married. I want to pay off my debt. I want to, you are asking way too small. You are thinking way too small. 
We brought up this example earlier on in Proverbs, but remember Solomon. The Lord says, I'm going to bless you because of your father, because of you were, you were born into a family, not because of anything you've done. Ask me anything, and I will give it to you. Solomon says, I want to rule your king rightly. Solomon says, I want to be able to make wise decisions and discern between good and evil so that I can lead your people. The Lord says, you ask for a good thing. Because you ask for this, I will give you wisdom. I will make you the wisest man who ever lived. And in addition to that, I will give you what you didn't ask for. I will expand your kingdom. I'll make you the richest king who ever lived. Because you love me. That passage begins with Solomon feared the Lord. 1 Kings 3, 3. That's what we should be asking for. I'm going to close with James 1, 5 through 8. And then we're going to respond in song. Take this to heart after this text this morning. James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven tossed by the wind. This is one who's trying to serve two masters. For that person will not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Brothers and sisters, seek the Lord in love. Ask in faith for wisdom because he first loved us. And he has given us an imperishable inheritance in Christ. Let's pray and then we will respond in praise before we approach the table. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you. You are a great and awesome and gracious God. Let us never get tired of speaking of your love for us. Lord, even we have most of us in this room have lived in peace our entire lives. We praise you for your common grace that restrains the hand of evil. And we also praise you when you withdraw that restraining and evil men terrorize because we know in a way we can't understand you're working it out for our good and your glory but we know most importantly through Jesus Christ of your saving grace you love those who love you because you make us new and teach us to love you and give us a new heart may we seek Ask and receive the blessed hope through Jesus Christ our Lord and the inheritance in the life everlasting. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.